Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Biography Channel of the New Books Network, which has as its motto, Sharing Knowledge So People Can Thrive. I'm your host, Dan Hill, and I'm joined today by Nelson Johnson. He is the author of Darrow's Nightmare, the forgotten story of America's most famous trial lawyer. The publisher is Rosetta Books. Nelson is a retired New Jersey Superior Court judge who has practiced law 30 years prior to the bench. Early in his career, he represented the Atlantic City Planning Board. That experience resulted in Boardwalk Empire, which inspired the HBO series. This is his fourth book. Today's episode is entitled Darrow Done In by the General. Welcome to the show, Nelson. Thank you for having me, Dan. Pleasure to be here. I think we'll have a most interesting conversation. So give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Well, the the book focuses on the worst two years in the life of Clarence Darrow. He went west in 1911 to represent two young brothers, the McNamara brothers. Uh, And when he got there, he quickly learned that they were guilty. Uh, They had blown up the Los Angeles Times building. 20 people were killed. Uh, It was a a huge, huge uh, debacle for the labor movement that these two young men were, were caught and so easily, you know, proven that they had done it. The labor movement was counting on Darrow to get an acquittal. He, he, with the help of Lincoln Steffens negotiated a plea bargain. And then not long after that, the powers that be decided that they wanted Clarence Darrow and he was indicted himself. Okay. Um, let's go back to, and, and the, the, the crime itself involved, if I remember right, 16 sticks of dynamite and uh, really just, you know, was devastating his impact. Is that correct? Yes. The, the, the younger brother of the two, uh, Jim, he's a bit of a jackass. Uh, he, he wasn't paying attention to where he put the dynamite and it was in a in ink alley, which was where all of the used ink uh, was stored until it was taken away and highly flammable material. And he created you know, a, a, a conflagration that he never saw coming himself. Uh, but it did result in the death of, of 20 people and dozens and dozens of people who were injured, including, you know, firemen and other employees. It, it, it was, it was a, it's one of the ugliest moments in labor terrorism in the United States. It's probably the worst. Okay. Um, and I think we're going to go deeper into the trial and so forth. But I want to back up for just a moment because the book opens with a kind of a roster, as it were, of all the various and very often colorful figures who, uh, you know, have a role in this book. Uh, none more so, of course, than Clarence Darrow. Uh, you quote rather early on an interesting description uh, by somebody who said of Darrow, he seemed to be all sorts of and all ages, from the boy he never outgrew to the old man he never became. I'm intrigued by your own sense of Clarence Darrow. I know from our conversation, having worked in retail early in your life, very early in your life, that you have a pretty fine sense of who someone is. What did you come away with 
regarding your sense of Darrow, the man? Darrow was far more eccentric than the typical biographer is willing to concede. He really needed someone to, so to speak, wind him up and point him in the right direction because he was the kind of guy that could go days and weeks without without bathing, without changing his clothes, uh, without bothering to do anything more than nibble on a couple things to eat. He was a very fussy fussy eater. Uh, and he, he, he viewed himself as the champion of the underdog. Uh, he wasn't all that interested in the law. Uh, he was interested in advocacy. He was interested in the courtroom battle and the courtroom drama, and he was damn good at it. But he always needed local counsel, and I never really had an appreciation for this until I really started digging. He needed local counsel because he really wasn't interested in studying the law. He was more interested in reading social tracts and philosophy and poetry and, and going to meetings and, and doing recitations of things that he had written. He wrote several books and, 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 and I have them and, and they're good, but he was more interested in that than he was in the law per se, the law, if you, if you follow what I'm saying. Okay. And we're going to come to that local council in a few moments. Uh, but in terms of pointing him a certain direction, he had a first wife and then a second one, and it's the second wife, Ruby, who matters for the purpose of this book. Uh, she describes, or you describe, uh, her impression of Clarence when they first met, that he was uh, too much like Ohio and not enough like Chicago. What was the dynamics of their marriage, and, and how effective was she in trying to uh, direct him, as it were? Ruby was a journalist, and... I had the good op the good fortune of reading a lot of the letters or all the letters that she wrote to Irving Stone because they're on file at the Library of Congress. And first she was quite articulate. Secondly, she was she was Clarence's champion from the get-go because she recognized, I think, better than any other man or woman who was his contemporary that he was he was on his way to becoming the best known lawyer in American history. And so she was a facilitator. Once once they married, she gave up journalism and she really gave up Ruby. She was she was Mrs. Darrow and she was there to look after all his details that he couldn't care less about. Uh, and so she t she attended to all his life's needs, everything from getting him a new wardrobe and getting him to the barbershop and getting getting a manicure, uh, making arrangements for where they would live. And this, this was, you know, an itinerant lawyer who was traveling all the time. And so Ruby handled all the logistics in terms of, you know, booking passage and, you know, getting the bags together. Uh, so, you know, he could not have had the career that he had without Ruby. Okay. I, I'm starting to get a sense of Clarence Darrow as uh, rather akin to a professor from my hometown, who uh, his dissertation committee at Harvard said, it's brilliant, but you have to type it up for us. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's, uh, that, that, that sounds a little bit like Darrow's mindset. Okay, so this episode is called Darrow Done In by the General, uh, at your suggestion. So I think we need to talk about the general, who's a man named Harrison Otis. What's the nature of his personality, and also what's his agenda? Harrison Gray Otis was not the not the founder of the Los Angeles Times, but he 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 was one of the founders, and then he bought out his partner, uh, and 
he was he was a dominant figure in early Los Angeles. He was a veteran of two wars. He he was he fought in the American Civil War, uh, and then when the Spanish American War uh, broke out at the age of sixty one, he volunteered for that and was commissioned as a as a general, a, a true patriot. I think in his own way a true visionary too. But he was he was vehemently. Uh, anti-labor. He viewed he viewed labor as some sort of you know cancer on society, and so he, his newspaper was dedicated to reporting all things bad about the American labor movement. Uh, so much so uh, that you know he eventually became his paper became the most hated newspaper in the country by the labor movement uh, because he was he was forever you know doing exposés and, and writing rants, uh, you know, really, really taking shots at the labor movement. And, and he made himself a target and, and his building wound up being, you know, being destroyed. Literally the target. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned the Merchants and Manufacturers Association that he formed. And I think one statistic, the book was something like nine out of 10 businesses in Los Angeles uh, ended up joining this essentially anti-union movement. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, everything from you know warehouses and ports to you know restaurants and, and breweries. Uh, he he really bullied people in any. If you were an employer, he bullied you into joining Merchants and Manufacturers Association. Uh, and what they what they did was do everything they could to snuff out organized labor. Uh, and he was pretty good at it. Uh, and things sort of came came to a head in the spring of 1910 when the people from San Francisco had sent down union organizers uh, and they called a general wide strike. So there were pickets appearing in front of any, any, any business of, of any decent size. Uh, and that, that, that whole confrontation just kept getting worse uh, until... It was requested by the people from Los Angeles that they needed help. They needed more help in, you know, doing and dealing with merchant manu- merchants and manufacturers. And the help came from Indianapolis, which was the Iron Workers Union, who had been waging a bombing campaign for about two years before that. They had done a string of bombings uh, in the Midwest. And so now they decided to do one in Los Angeles. Only it turned out to be much worse than anybody envisioned because they weren't looking to kill anybody. But that's that's what happened. That's what happened. So that kind of brings us nicely to the trial itself. And there besides Darrow, there's probably four principal lawyers involved on the defense side. It's Earl Rogers, local counsel, as well as a man named Horace Appel. And then from the prosecution, John Fredericks and Joe Ford. Now, you have the extra vantage point and knowledge and insights of having been not just a retail clerk in your life, but a judge, in fact. So I'm really curious as to your appraisal. You've gone through the manuscript from this trial. I mean, my God, it's something like 8,500 pages, you told me. So you have a quite informed opinion. And I'm curious from a professional point of view, as well as from the manuscript, what's your take on each of these four lawyers in turn? Well, I, I want your listeners first to appreciate something, which is that the McNamara brothers were pled guilty pursuant to a plea bargain agreement. And, okay. And then it was after that that Darrow was indicted for alleged jury tampering. And in terms of legal counsel, the lead 
defense counsel was a gentleman named Earl Rogers. His primary assistant was Horace Appel. Uh, Clarence Starrett did play a role, but he played a, he played a small role in the trial. Uh, for the prosecution, you had John Fredericks, who was more a politician than he was a lawyer. Candidly, he wasn't much of a lawyer, uh, but he was hoping to run for governor. He did eventually run for governor and, and, and lose. Uh, and his co-counsel, the deputy, uh, was, a, was a guy named Joseph Ford. Uh, he was a very capable lawyer, but he had a short fuse and could you know, express rage that was totally inappropriate for the moment. Uh, Earl Rogers really dominated the courtroom. Uh, Rogers is in the American Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame and with good reason. The reason being that he single-handedly brought more innovations to the courtroom for trying cases than any other one lawyer. He is what I would refer to as the father of demonstrative evidence because he was blowing up photographs before anybody was doing it. He was bringing in skeletons to talk about anatomy. He was doing ballistics. He was doing things in the courtroom that other lawyers hadn't even thought about. Uh, the man clearly was a genius, but he was a very troubled genius. Uh, my take on him, and I've, I've read his, I read you know, his daughter's memoir, uh, Final Verdict, which it's about her career, but it's but a great deal about her father. I think I think Earl Rogers was bipolar, and unfortunately, he medicated wow. with, he medicated with alcohol, uh, and he eventually, at the age of fifty two, told his daughter, "You know, I'm going off where you can't find me, and I'm going to drink myself to death," and he did. Uh, but he was he his performance in that trial was a tour de force. Uh, and you can tell from reading a transcript in terms of the exchanges between him and the judge and him and the other lawyers, he, he dominated the proceedings because not only was he very articulate and charming, but he, he, he was brilliant. He had, he had, whether it was an evidence rule, a statute, a California Supreme Court decision, he had them at, at, his, at the tip of his tongue. He could, he could recite different portions of statutes and, and different portions of evidence rules and, and leading cases. He can recite them and he doesn't have the opportunity to be looking for them in the middle of a trial. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting watching him perform. And for me, I say watching him. I, I was so excited to be able to see him in action. <laughs> well, that comes through very nicely in the book. You really get a sense that he is amazing. It's, it's that ability, as you said, that facility to draw in the pertinent example from case law. Uh, and then his ability to, to work the room and the jury and, and, and for that matter, the judge, I mean, just overpowers the defense, essentially. He, he, the, the, uh, the, the judge was really out of his element uh, prior, prior to going on the, on the bench. Uh, the, 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 the judge had, had developed tremendous expertise in Western water rights, but it's pretty apparent he didn't know <laughs> He didn't know a whole lot about, you know, a whole, a whole lot about trying a case or, you know, J Judge Hutton was a real novice to criminal law and it showed. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, from your experiences as a judge yourself, um, <laughs> what qualities in a lawyer do you find are, are so essential and sometimes missing? Um, and you also mentioned at one point that the practice of clients lying to their lawyers is not exactly unheard of. So, uh, are there a few uh, insights you'd like to share with us from your, your years on the bench? 
Well, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a seminar next week for the New Jersey bar, annual bar convention. And to make sure that it's worthy of, of continuing legal education uh, and getting and, and lawyers you know, receiving credits for it, uh, I come up with a list of takeaways uh, from, from what I learned in, in this book. And takeaway number one is don't enter a courtroom unless you are prepared. And that goes for everybody, especially the judge, because you could see Hutton Hutton really struggled with dealing with the issues and he could not manage the lawyers. They were, they were constant bickering. Uh, and there were even requests at time by the prosecution, you know, can we continue this discussion on this particular issue out of the presence of the jury? And each time Hutton didn't have enough sense to realize that he was making a mistake because more often than not, Rogers would wind up, you know, prevailing in these discussions and the jurors were sitting there hearing it all. Okay. So number one is be prepared. Maybe just a couple more. I, I, I do have, I do have that list prepared and it's not, it's not in front of me right now. Oh, that's quite but, all right. No, 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 don't I, worry I, about I, it. I, I mean, that's okay. I would, I, I would say the, 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 the second one would be that you must be courteous at all times because again, Fre- Fre- Frederick's during the course of the trial, uh, Frederick's really made a fool of himself uh, in terms of not only how rude he was to various witnesses and to opposing counsel, uh, but you know, at one point he interrupted everything and accused Darrow of trying to hypnotize a witness. At another, <laughs> at another point, he got upset with Horace Appel and, you know, tried to throw an inkwell at him and, and Rogers got in the middle of it and wound up getting a gash in his wrist. Uh, and so, you know, you, you gotta always keep your cool and, and remain courteous at all times. Something Fredericks didn't, you know, didn't appreciate. Where yeah, no, I mean, to imagine the jury wouldn't notice a bleeding, you know, defense attorney after uh, that incident. My yeah, gosh. Yeah. Pretty hard not to notice. Okay, let's let's go move into the the trial itself. I mean, on some level, you know, especially once he knows they're they're guilty and he has to find a, a way to a solution, you know, you can just sit there and go, "Oh my God, how did he accept this case? And how did he not get himself off this case and 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 flee for the hills?" Um, and yet, there is there is something to this trial beyond even just the two brothers, uh, because you know, really, there's a whole view that he shared with Lincoln Stevens, the muckraking journalists regarding the, the morality of this this battle between capital and labor and even their view of Christianity. So can you give us can you give a, a larger picture of what were the motivations for, for Darrow in taking this case on? I know we've kind of made some remarks early on about the general and so forth, but I'd like to go a bit deeper on what united Darrow and Lincoln Stevens. Well, it, it, Lincoln Stephens Stephen, sorry. Uh, that's okay. He, he was the original muckraking journalist. Uh, he came from a family of means and he had the ability to travel wherever he wanted to. And, and, and he chose American cities, Chicago, New York, uh, Baltimore. Uh, and, and he decided, Boston, he decided that he was going to report on the abuse that immigrants, common laborers, uh, the underbelly of society received at the hands of the power establishment. 
and he did a pretty good job at it. Uh, and he sought out Darrow uh, years before this trial uh, when he was in Chicago and they became friends. They were real kindred spirits in terms of their outlook on life. Uh, Ste- Stephens professed to be a Christian. Darrow said, you know, he thought Christian tenants were fine, but he just couldn't find anybody that practiced them. <laughs> and, and so the two of them, the two of them really were kindred spirits. And, and it was Stephens who was helpful in getting the McNamara brothers off the stage, so to speak, because he negotiated the plea bargain where they pled guilty to the, to the, to the dynamiting of the, of the LA times building. Uh, and they both, you know, went off to jail, one for life and one, one for 10 years. And it was not long after that, that Darrow was indicted. And, and Stephens was a very important witness in the trial. And again, the prosecuting attorney, Fredericks, he wanted to do sort of a mano a mano with Fredericks, pardon me, with Stephens. Fredericks tried, Fredericks tried to do mano a mano with Stephens. Stephens ate his lunch. Stephens made him look like a fool. Uh, I mean, if some of the some of the some of the scenes and some of the things that you know I read were downright embarrassing for a lawyer to get into those kind of exchanges with such a well prepared witness, such an intelligent witness. So Stephens was an important player, not only in you know getting the McNamara case resolved, but also in helping Darrow with the bribery trial. Because I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that you know the, the the case for the defense would have been as strong without Stephens. Stephens was very important to the case. Sure. Well, one of the exchanges, I'm not sure if I recall it quite correctly. You and you can uh, get it right for the listeners. But uh, so uh, in the mano a mano between Stephens and Fredericks, uh, Stephens says something like. Well, yes, I'm I'm basically guilty of uh, being an anarchist, and and then something worse than that. And you know, Fredericks thinks this is a great opportunity. He says, "Well, what is, what's even worse than that?" And it turns out that he's a believer in Christianity, if I recall correctly. Yes, he said, "I'm even worse than an anarchist. I'm I'm a Christian." <laughs> and I imagine Fredericks thought he had gotten to the promised land until he heard the answer. But yes, um, yeah, you can you can see Fredericks being deflated. Uh, time and time and again, he, he put his foot in his mouth. Sure. So there are indeed, as you alluded to earlier, two trials, and the second one is on this bribery charge. So I think you have to, you know, this is details. I mean, I knew a little bit about Darrow's career, but particularly the Scopes trial, and uh, I knew nothing about what transpired in L.A., and I suspect most people don't know about this bribery trial. So you can you set the stage for us on this one? Well, when Stephens negotiated the plea bargain for the brothers, he tried to include Darrow and his and, and one of the investigators that Darrow did not hire, a guy by the name of Bert Franklin, who had been arrested in the middle of all the plea bargain negotiations for attempting to pass a bribe. Darrow wouldn't hear of it. He, he, he felt that, you know, if they were going to do something to him, they would have to do it. And, and he learned later that they did do it. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, when the arrest was made, there were three former sheriff's officers, all of whom had worked closely with, with the attorney general's office, pardon me, with, with, the, with the district attorney's office, uh, and all of whom knew each other well, 
and knew the knew the prosecuting attorney well. It looked so much like a setup. It real it really did. And so the guy who gets arrested, of course, he says, "Oh well, Darrow made me do it." Well, anybody that knew anything about Darrow knew that he wasn't going to part with money uh, to <laughs> you know, th- th- that easily because because there was large sums of money that were involved. We're, we're talking you know a couple thousand dollars, which in those days would be like you know fifty thousand uh, dollars. And Darrow wasn't going to part with that kind of money, uh, but he was indicted. Uh, and then the trial went forward. And as I said, Earl Rogers really did save the day. Uh, Earl, Earl Rogers, in my opinion, if you remove him from that trial, I'm not sure Darrow gets out of Los Angeles. I think he, you know, he could wind up serving a prison sentence and you and I wouldn't even be talking about him because nobody would know who the hell he was. You know, if, if he got convicted in, in Los Angeles in, in 1912, 1913, uh, and yeah, it is a forgotten story because I, I've got colleagues, you know, on the bench and I've got lawyers I'm very friendly with that when I started talking to them about this, they said, what? Darrell was a criminal defendant himself? And I said, yeah. yes, he was. Yeah. And because Irving Stone's book was written back in the 40s and, you know, got a lot of good play for a lot of years. But, you know, my generation of lawyers, unless you were, had a mother like I did, uh, they, they weren't going to get the book. Uh, it, was, it was out of print by that point. Uh, so it, 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 it was the two worst years in his life. Uh, and certainly for his wife, Ruby, too, because in the middle of the of the, of the bribery trial, she had a nervous breakdown. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a real tough time for both of them. You know, a lot of people suffer emotionally in this book and then eventually in their lives. I mean, now we mentioned earlier about uh Rogers drinking himself literally to death, but uh, Appel, the other defense attorney, was committed to a mental institution. I read in the book, which you know yes. is, is quite a one-two punch. Horace Horace Appel also was brilliant, uh, and he, he had a, he had a way of really getting under the skin of the prosecuting attorneys and and getting them to say and do stupid things. And he would just sit back and let the, let the judge discipline them for making fools of themselves. Uh, But he had his own emotional issues. He, he, he was a, he was a Mexican Jew who had, you know, an Hispanic accent. He was brilliant. He was the first person from Arizona uh, to be accepted to West Point. Uh, he, the day he arrives there, he gets a telegram that his father had died. He has to turn around and go home. Couldn't make a living for himself in Arizona. Went to Los Angeles, uh, studied law, became a lawyer, became a very successful lawyer in the in the L.A. courts, doing mostly criminal defense. And when the charges were brought against uh, Darrow and Rogers was selected as co-counsel, Rogers r- reached out to Appel and the two of them, it, it, it was, it, it's fun to read how the two of them played off one another and how the two of them were a disruptive force, you know, for the prosecution, uh, constantly undermining them and making them look foolish. So I've got one last question for you. Um, you say right at the end of the book that you are still confounded by the question of whether or not Darrow was possibly guilty on the bribery charge and, Roger's daughter, I believe her name is Adela, uh, seemed to intimate or even just declare that she thought Darrow was guilty. Uh, was he, in your opinion, guilty or not guilty on the bribery? I don't think he was guilty. And and I why I say that 
is it would have been a reckless move for him to think that he was going to be able to bribe a juror in a strange town working with all strangers. And the other thing to keep in mind, the gentleman who was who who was supposedly the juror that was bribed, he hadn't even been selected as a juror yet. <laughs> and and so it would have been a would have been a pretty poor spending of the money that you know to try to get the vote of guy who you might never know if he was going to, he was on the, he was on the jury pool, but he wasn't on the jury panel. Sure. No. And there's a wonderful uh, statement by Darrow during the trial. I guess it is. He says, I'm as fitted for jury bribing as a Methodist preacher for tending bar, um, (laughs) which is the the sort of turn of phrase that I think a a jury will, you know, delight in and uh, kind of start to pull for you. So I want to thank you Nelson so much for being on the show today. Uh, This has been the New Books Network's biography channel. My guest, Nelson Johnson, he is the author of Darrow's Nightmare, the Forgotten Story of America's Most Famous Trial Lawyer. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes or check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or you can go to the New Books Network. Uh, On its website, you can find both the biography channel as well as the special series programming where I have another podcast called Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, There are all sorts of juicy quotes from Clarence Darrow, but I chose this one. I have never killed a man, but I have read many obituaries with a lot of pleasure. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.